Good morning, and welcome to episode 14 of Inspire Heard, your grown-up girl talk. I'm Stacy Fleece, and I'm here with Samantha Tredelius and Jennifer Tavani, and we are excited and honored to spend the next 30 minutes with you, empowering you for the coming week with raw, unedited, and hopefully a little bit of humorous take on life. Uh, thank you for joining us, and uh, we are here today with Dr. Karen Davison, um, who is a mental health expert, and that has become such a hot topic these days, mental health, anxiety, um, and it's, it's uh, not just from the pandemic, but I just think also becoming so much more normalized and accepted in society, which it desperately needed to be. So Karen, thank you for joining us. We are so happy to have you here. Hi. <laughs> um, I want to start off talking a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are here today. Starting in uh, getting education in math and industrial engineering, and somehow you have meandered your way over to mental health expert as Dr. Davison. How did you make that transition? I think the link, the intellectual link between these fields is a lot closer than it might seem. So, you know, at the risk of rambling a bit here, um, I started off majoring in mathematics, which is a field that's really based on the search for relationships. People tend to think of math as being numbers, but at the higher levels of mathematics, it's about connections and relationships. And um, through that, I learned a lot. And and got really curious about many things, including artificial intelligence. And I was able to go to graduate school in industrial engineering and operations research at a time when AI was just starting. And I had some funding and, and got to look into pattern recognition from both sort of the human aspects and the computer aspects, the mathematical and statistical components. And it really overlaps nicely, I think, with working with people. People come to me seeking advice on patterns in their life. Why, why does this keep happening to me? Or what can I do to change this outcome that I'm having? And being curious about relationships and variables is really the heart of my work right now with people. Um, I work with very intellectual people and also try to deal, you know, introduce and educate them in the emotional and behavioral aspects. Um, but certainly starting from a place of a very intellectual uh, mathematical framework is really helpful, I think, for many of my clients who also, by the way, as you said before, you know, maybe previously thought that mental health and therapy was a stigmatized service, weren't really friendly to the idea, you know, they might not be so into things that don't seem to have a scientific or cognitive explanation. And so I think these things are very related. In terms of my arc, um, I'm the first in my family to go to college. And I was always a good math student. I saw that as a way to um, be sure that I would be able to get employed. I'm from a rural area. I knew I could never go back. I would have to leave and, and move to a, a city. And so at that time, it seemed like the right thing to do. And again, I, I'm very fortunate that sort of my talents overlapped with opportunities. Um, I would never have 
considered being a psychologist where I'm from. I never had been to a psychologist until I was older. I, you know, I, I wasn't even familiar with this. Where I'm from, people go to a, a, a psychiatrist if they're quote unquote crazy. I don't like that term, but you know what I'm saying. So it's like the idea of high functioning people going to talk therapy for coaching or counseling, like that wasn't even in my universe. So through my experiences in college and, and beyond, I, I learned more about the field and people came to me um, my whole life for advice because I'm a good listener. And uh, by the way, that's the key to anybody out there who's thinking of becoming a therapist. They don't pay you to talk. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody wants to tell you what to do. Right. But, so Karen, uh, they pay you to listen. Going back to the stigmatism of therapy and how many people, you know, it even is now like when you hear like, oh, I'm going to a therapist, you're like, oh, well, something must be wrong with you. Or, you know, many people don't have a comfortable feeling about therapy or, and maybe they, they should try it. Or, you know, how, how do you find um, that barriers being broken or, or, or is it still really there? Like, what are you seeing in your, in your field? So... I currently am an exclusively in a private practice and I don't really solicit or advertise much. I have a listing online. People come to me because they were referred by somebody else, most often somebody who had been a client of mine or knows a client of mine. So, so I'm in a fortunate position. I'm not convincing anybody, yeah. but I have worked in places where we, we did outreach in particular, I was at the Stanford Counseling and Psychological Services for many years. And oftentimes the people who were in most need of help were the most reluctant to come in. And what I found when I was working there, what I really enjoyed was going out into the community and giving talks on things that are practical and letting people sort of welcoming people in from a place of commonality. Again, I could go out and say, hey, you know, I have an undergraduate degree in mathematics and a master's degree in engineering. And I remember how tough it was as a woman in engineering, you know, come into the counseling center and people come in and they'd say, I want to go to that one that, that study in engineering. <laughs> or I go, me. She I go me. to first, a first generation college student gathering and I'd let them know I'm from like, you know, dirt hole, Pennsylvania, you know, I'm the first person in my family. Not really. That's not the place where I'm from. I should make fun of where I'm from, I'm from Oil City, Pennsylvania, but it, it is a, it is a impoverished, uh, you know, difficult place. And um, I'd say I'm from this place and, you know, I'm here now at Stanford. And uh, that was a way to connect with people, to let them know that this is not a, uh, a place of judgment. It's not a place of, of superiority or control. It's really a, it's therapy can be a very welcoming environment. It should be a very welcoming environment. I always love the terminology coach because everybody assimilates the word coach with something fabulous and wonderful and everybody loves their coach. So when you talk about being, you know, a relationship or a life coach or something like that, I think many of those people that have this stigma around, you know, negativity, around therapy can use the word coach uh, instead. And that always make me and my partners more comfortable. 
So, well, I'll tell you, Jen, I would, we could have a whole other show <laughs> on business regulation. And this is a really tricky topic because it turns out that if you have a doctoral degree and a license as a psychologist, you have to be really careful how you describe your service. And when you offer a coaching service, that's actually not regulated in the same way. And there can be all sorts of problems. If you want to say that you're offering, um, if you're a psychologist, you have to have a certain, a certain um, license and, and registration and you have to do continuing education. But as a coach, you do not in right. the same way. There's, there's yeah. like, you know, some understandings, but it's not regulated by the Board of Psychology or the, or the Board of Behavioral Sciences. So these terms are actually protected terms, psychologist, um, marital and family therapist, and so on. And sometimes I think the, the regulatory aspects actually get in the way of some of the service aspects. So I don't think consumers are always um, familiar with these differences and, and, you know, the people that have the licenses have to uphold them. So, so, yeah. but we could go on and on. I'm, you know, my skirt, my skirt cohort is very familiar over the years with me. I sort of pulling my hair out about it, you know, um, because, you know, it, it can be problematic at times. I'm sure it is. And that's kind of the point though, is that, you know, getting people who need the help most to go to a therapist is difficult, mm -hmm. right? But when you call it something more common, and it is more common because I understand that there's, you don't need all of your degrees and experience to have a coaching certificate, but, and what you do is far, you know, greater than, than just a coach, but to get that, you know, newbie into therapy who doesn't like yep. that term, yep. that yep. could be, you know, an easy transition not to, um, you know, make less of, of your degrees and what, what you do. Um, that is a sticky situation. Um, no, I, I agree with you though. I think it's like the framing um, and sort of the history of, of therapy and mental health services has a certain kind of weight and negativity to it that I think is a turnoff for a lot of people. Um, even though I would argue that, you know, in my case, in my, I have a private practice and it's a kind of a boutique sort of concierge service, I actually can't be as helpful to people who have severe mental illness because I don't have an integrated psychiatrist. I don't have a social worker. I don't have a, a front desk staff to provide the connections to the resources. So I am working exclusively with very high functioning people who need to, who need to or want to do better in their life. I do think that the whole mental health approach uh, has really taken on a different meaning, especially over the last year, and especially as you have people like Prince Harry, who, you know, very high profile, who's come out and talked about his own mental health challenges. I do think that normalizing it, which um, it could only be beneficial. Um, tell me what you've seen over the last year, because I have to believe or maybe I'm wrong, tell me if I'm wrong, but I have to believe that, that the, the mental health state of the average person throughout the pandemic has really shifted. I mean, it's been hard on everybody. Um, and and I, I would think that there's been some really different challenges that you've had to address with some of your, your um, patients. Yeah. What have yeah. you seen over the last year? So a lot more anxiety. Um, 
also people who have had history of trauma are often re-experiencing some of those old traumas again. Um, I think in general, the isolation combined with the requirement to be vigilant about so many things and the uncertainties of the future have raised all sorts of, of relationship issues um, and identity issues for people. Um, again, I, I think that sort of um, even people who maybe had a, had a household, an ample household still noticed that they were suffering from the lack of casual relationships, contact with people outside their home. You know, we all need physical touch. We need eye contact. We need uh, variety. We need these things. And this was kind of uh, the great unplanned experiment in isolation. It was a horrible experiment, by the way. Whoever said it had <laughs> like it, it sucked. It still sucks. And, and, and I, and I don't want to be sort of too didactic about this, but I really do think that physical health, while I think staying alive is really important, I think physical health was, was the only thing that was really looked at in terms of a lot of these guidelines for isolation. Um, at some point, you know, especially when we talk about months and months and months, mental health it isn't, you can't really separate mental health and emotional well-being from physical health. People suffered more physically this year, I would argue, as a result of anxiety and loneliness than they did from COVID. I mean, that's a very bold statement, you know, but, but if we look at like the suffering people went through. But it's totally true. And, and continue to go through because now. Oh, God. I, I just feel like that was neglected in these guidelines. Yeah. Oh, 100%. And, and by the way, I do also think staying alive is very important. <laughs> but I also think that like relationships, you know, we're not designed to spend this amount of time together as, you know, a, a married couple and, and people, I, somebody had said something as I was like, just like, I need a break from my kids and my family and my dog, just everybody. And it was, it was a very like, just focus statement. Like people are not designed to spend this much time together and not have outlets. And then when you, the only outlet you have is to then continue to look inside yourself and figure out who you are, or wh what your life's going to be like. And, you know, one of the things I think we, a theme that we've been hearing time and time again, over the last 12 months, at, at, even at, a lot as women is redefining themselves and redefining their roles in not only their personal life, but also in their professional life where you're seeing people that, are, you know, that have lost their job or their jobs transition into something else. And maybe they're like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and being in a position to be able to make some changes and make some decisions that they maybe didn't get to have before. Um, it's very scary. And it's, you know, I think the last 12 months have been a very, very scary experiment for, I mean, I'll admit personally, I mean, I, I there were months there where I was like, I, I don't, I don't even know who I am. Who am I? Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, even, even if 
your physical health didn't deteriorate, which it was pretty hard for it to not to, even if you got hugs every day, even if you lived with other people that you loved and no one murdered each other or assaulted each other. And I'm not joking about domestic violence, but I'm just saying that it's like being in captivity with the same people under such duress is really, you know, to survive together is a real accomplishment. Um, but even, you know, none of, even if none of that bothered you, there was a lot of time to think about who you are. There, was, there wasn't the normal sort of um, casual contact with other people that kind of mirrors aspects of ourselves. We, we, we didn't get to engage in a lot of the hobbies or the, the, the work activities for many people that help us know who we are and, and validate us. Um, so yeah, and, and you know, not seeing your grandma, like that can be a really, that can have a really um, big impact on your individual identity as well. And so, I, and we're not really out of the woods. I think this sort of quote unquote reopening, you can reopen a store, you can reopen, you know, a restaurant, but that's not going to be a, a switch um, to just get back to quote unquote normal relationships, normal relating, normal conversational tempo, all of these things. It's going to be a, a while, I think, before the mental health, emotional, relational aspects of this are eased. I'm not even saying we're done, but just eased. I think that's going to be sustained longer than the actual viral threat. Well, and haven't we also been seeing a lot of dependency issues and, and chemical, you know, people turning to alcohol and drugs and things like that just to numb themselves from the feelings that they're sitting with every day? Um, I know I've heard well, a, a lot of people struggling with that. Food. I mean, being trapped in a house with a refrigerator all day and not leaving is also, yeah. I think food has been a big comfort. I, I don't want to call it an addiction per se, but I think it has been overused by many people. There has, there have been increases in domestic violence, um, all sorts of things um, that are, there are real physical manifestations along with substance abuse. I mean, honestly, how much sourdough bread can we all bake and eat over a year? It's, <laughs> it's exhausting. <laughs> No, and I think too, the, I think the, the idea of reentry and, and the emergence of these new beings that we've become, you know, the relationships that we had were maybe filling us in ways that now do not. And so, you know, I know that like, I'm going back out there and, and the relationships that I have that I've always had were my foundation and they are stronger now than they were ever because we needed each other. But all that fray and all that extra bullshit that was in my life. Like, I just don't have time for it. Like, I don't want to go back to that woman. Um, and I think a lot of people are dealing with that. And then it's like, you know, people are finding that they have to go maybe make new friends or find new careers or find new things to fuel their fire. Um, so it's, it's got negative and positives to it um, in both sense of the word. Um, so yeah, I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of unpeeling and unpacking and, and just things that I think we're all still dealing with. And it's not like a light switch at all. I think it's going to be a slow, a slow go for a while. Right. Are there any new struggles to your profession that you're finding these days as opposed to in the past? I mean, definitely there was a big transition in, in going from meeting in person to meeting online with people. 
And um, I, was, I was just going to ask about that. Like that, we've all been on Zoom, but that has to be impactful in your practice. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it has had um, probably different degrees and different effects for, for different clients of mine. And also for myself, I mean, just to be honest, I, I didn't really commit to being in front of a computer screen all day. There's something like physically rewarding about looking at a person in the room versus um, interacting with a flat screen. And um, when people come to my office, I greet them, I offer them a cup of tea. There's a, there's a real behavioral and proximity aspect of my work that, that went away. And I've had many of my clients throughout the year say, you know, they really can't wait till they can come back and sit in the room with me. So as human beings, we need that proximity and that personal interaction. Um, but so that was a transition. Um, fortunately though, most of my clients are very technically savvy. It wasn't like people dropped out because of it. Um, it also freed up a lot of conveniences. Um, you know, I, I want to say it wasn't all bad because people's ability to come in, um, when they didn't have to park and they didn't have to drive and, and they could work it into their schedule was, was increased too. So, I mean, you know, there's good and bad, but I think that there is a certain kind of, um, mutual regulation that we provide each other by being in the same room, you know, breathing the same air, exchanging, um, maybe even, you know, at times a handshake or, or handing somebody a cup of tea is like a very, it conveys a certain kind of love and warmth that you can't really transmit through Zoom. Yeah. Yeah, the Zoom is the Zoom is a tough one. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about you. As I mean, I know you personally. You're a dear friend of mine, and um, I think you're the most one of the most fantastic people. But I'm very interested in how you decompress after a day of work because you are absorbing so much from so many people. What does Karen do at the end of the day to just kind of like clean out her chakras and like get back to baseline? after you've had just, you know, a lot coming at you all day, like, what do you do? What's your secret? Tennis. <laughs> <laughs> Hit that ball, girl. Hit that ball. Um, yes. do, you ever, do, yes. you, do you find that like some days are more overwhelming than others just because of the content you're dealing with or? No, I literally play tennis five to six times a week, mostly after work. And I schedule that deliberately because I need to walk away. People will like, you know, part of my job is to take on the burdens to really care for my clients. Like I really do care about the folks I work with and I can identify very strongly with, with their feelings and their circumstances. And um, yeah, I mean, like I have tennis scheduled. It is non-negotiable. I'm out of there. It forces me. I change my clothes. You know, Mr. Rogers taught us to do that. When you come from work, <laughs> put on your cardigan, peel it off, change your shoes, on, play with puppets a little bit. Um, also, I have a dog that likes to be fed at the end of the day. He's kind of non-negotiable on that too. So I think sort of, um, and the people that I play tennis with are, are, really great companions and friends to me at this point. I mean, again, we've, we've kind of like played through 
through the plague. And, um, you know, it's super important. And I go to a club and, you know, I know people there and, you know, I have friends in my life and things like that, but I do try to schedule that, that really contrasting physical activity after having so much uh, cognitive and emotional work during the day. So for me, it's about that contrast between getting back into my body in a social way um, and, and getting outside too. That's good. Fresh air is always good to help unwind after. I'm going to yeah. take up tennis now. Now that the <laughs> now that we're on the tail, maybe the tail end of COVID, and take up tennis. You know what? I regret even saying it. I should have said some other sport because court space is like really tight <laughs> in the city. So you know. Okay, so I won't play in the city. I'll <laughs> only play in Marin. Is that okay, Karen? <laughs> As long as you reserve the court, I'm totally fine. And then I'll just come up and I'll, I'll play tennis with you. That's so. fair. That's fair. There you go. So it's a date. So one of the things that we, Stacy and I, because Stacy and I have known, full disclosure, we've known Karen for, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years, forever. Um, one of the things that I always loved about you, Karen, is that you were for job Karen when we met you. You had four different jobs you were doing. You were like, and we were always like, Karen, you need to scale back and just be one job, Karen. I think, um, I actually think the initial goal was just to be two job, Karen. That was the goal. I think it was to be two job, Karen. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, you know, now I, 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 I don't know how, how many you have now. We're down to one, right? Well, I mean, I'm still an adjunct professor at the Right yeah, Institute. You can't let some of the other stuff go. These lingering, well, it's based on relationships. I still have a few lingering dissertation students that I need to finish up with. And occasionally teaching a course is a good thing, so. And what about, like, going back to the four job, Karen, being the overcommitting of things that we as individuals in our past life, 12 months ago, were doing. Um, and I know, like, I'm a chronic yes person. Like, I yes, oh yeah, I can do that. I mean, we're all yesers. Like, we'll, we'll take on more than we can do. What are some of the tools for us gals, because I feel like women do this, that can help us to empower ourselves to know our limits and say no? Like, what are some of those secret Karen tools that we can pass on to our listeners here um, that can empower you to know your boundaries? Yeah, that's really interesting. I think when you, when you commit to many things, it's kind of important to set a timeline and to be really clear with yourself what you are getting out of all of those things. So at the beginning, uh, my dream was to really be a professor. I thought, well, I wanna do this. And then I had a practice on the side and I had a, a, a clinical position. I was kind of allowing things to compete with each other, to be honest. I wanted to see you know, if I maintained sort of these multiple roles if one of them would sort of take the lead. And I don't think I was super explicit about this with other people, but I did have check-in time periods with myself. You can't go to work every day saying, is this the one, is this the one? You know, that's like a neurotic mess, right? And, and any given day, you, you know, you wanna like just blow up your place of employment, you know, not, not Seriously, I should make jokes about terrorism. But anyways, um, you know me, I can't help, I can't help making <laughs> poor jokes. Anyway, um, in all seriousness, you know, you can't go into work every day doing a, a trial, but I did have 
time points on my calendar in which I said, I need to reevaluate this. And if something is coming out ahead, I need to find my way out. Now, in my case, the kinds of things that I committed to have an unraveling that is a longer tail than, than many. Again, you have dissertation students, you don't wanna leave them before they graduate. That's very meaningful to me. So I'm still engaged with that. But if, if, if I really did not find meaning in it, it would not be fair to those students to stay in it. Like we think we're doing it for other people, but at the heart of it, you have to get fed by it too. Well, I, think that's, I think that's one thing that women don't do is we don't take the time, to, we don't calendar ourselves to take the time to step back and look at, does this make sense for us? Is this feeding our soul? Uh, because we're just, so, we, we do say yes to everything. I mean, having that check-in time, I don't do that. And that's, uh, that's good advice. Yeah. And, and like put it on the calendar. Like commit to an in advance. No, I think it's good. I think it's really good. And I appreciate that advice um, because I think we all need to know where we, where we could set up those personal boundaries. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. It's been so wonderful talking to you, Karen. And we want to thank uh, Dr. Karen Davison for joining us today and thank our listeners, our inspired listeners for spending time with us. We hope you pulled a nugget or two out of this chat to help you get through the week. And for more inspired, please follow us on Podbean where you can find our new episodes every Monday at 10 a.m. And we're looking forward to sharing more grown-up girl talk with you next week. And until then, be inspired. <laughs>